verses 1 through 11. Back in chapter 8, the elders of Israel were before him. Now again, here in chapter 14, they are. And God's got a message for them. It wasn't what they were wanting to hear, but God's giving them what they need to hear. So he says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Now, the idolatry, as far as the visible idolatry, the, the idol, idolatry symbols was not, uh, they, they eliminated those, they were not in Babylon with them, but they had idols in their hearts. You know, our hearts can be factories that mass produce idols. You know, where we want things that aren't the Lord, that are rivals to the Lord in our heart, in our mind. That becomes a stumbling block to us. And you think about what do we have our greatest loyalty to, our highest affection for? Do we have idols in our hearts? Now, God tells them what they need. He says, you know, any man who sets up idols in his heart, you know, and I'm going to, I'll give him an answer. And uh, God, God uh, impresses upon them the need to repent and turn away from their idols. Not just their physical idols, but their idols in their hearts. And uh, if they didn't, God was going to bring uh, him to, to answer for it. Uh, God was going to uh, make an example out of him, make a, a byword out of him. So, so God is forthright condemning these elders of Israel in captivity for the idolatry in their heart, whether it was in their uh, physical possession or not. And, you know, he speaks again about these false prophets 
and you know warns about their bearing their iniquity. Um, the, both the, the people in Jerusalem and the people in exile were plagued by prophets who, who pretty much capitalized on the insecurity of the people in these troubled times to teach false messages. You know, to and, and there was still the temptation to shop around for the more favorable message. And there was the temptation to say things that people would want to hear, say things that were comforting, that were compassionate, but that hid the truth. God was going to punish he was going to punish for a purpose. We mentioned this before, but it, it's such a helpful thing to understand that there is, in many cases, a an important positive value out of punishment. He punishes in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. God punishes to purify. He punishes to be able to be a blessing uh, to the people. Thoughts and comments on that section. Said. The situation in chapter 8 with the temple, the situation in chapter 14 with their hearts. Yes, you're right. <laughs> because their heart should have been the temple of the Lord, but had been become the, the house of idols, both in chapter 8 in the physical temple and in their heart in chapter 14. Good point. I like that. Sean. I was just. Verse 11 really impresses me that after all of these things he's talking about, he would want to be their God, and he would want them to be his people. That is, wow. God continues to seek the relationship after they have spurned him so much. Again, you know, can you imagine, we've used the betrayal illustration that the Lord's using here, but can you imagine being serially betrayed by a wife that you're still seeking to purify so that you can have her back? You know, you would become alienated. You become embittered. You get to the point where I don't care what she does. I don't want her back. God doesn't deal with us that way, which is extremely gracious and merciful and almost un- unbelievable. Solomon's a great uh, negative illustration where he did build the temples for his foreign wives and, and you know we can let ourselves be influenced to seek things that are not the Lord very good uh, John Uh, 
Matthew 13, where he said, I shift the false prophecy if you love me. Can you comment on that? That's the out of the sight of God when you think about bringing, uh, testing the heart, even kind of uh, allowing people to be deceived. Yeah, I, I, you know, God, God punishes hard-heartedness by ultimately hardening the heart himself. You know, he will allow us to be deceived. He will send the deluding influence. He'll send the spirit to the false prophet as a punishment for our hardness, for our unwillingness to, to believe and to trust. So, I mean, I think God almost sets people up to fall harder when they show that kind of a disposition against the Lord. That's what I would say here. The people are hard-handed, hard-hearted and rebellious. So God sends them false prophets to deceive them as, so that they'll fall even more painfully. So faith and love require choice. And when you know God can terrify us all in the worship, that wouldn't really be difficult. But that doesn't accomplish faith and love. So, somebody said, you know, you've got Romeo trying to woo Juliet, but if he runs up the steps and carries her over the sack, it's a whole different story. <laughs> God, God won't carry her off the sack. So the choice is the necessary part. Yes. Uh, amen. That's exactly right. Okay. There's a lot of intriguing angles on this one. 12 to 23. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut it off from both man and beast, even these three men, even though these three men know a Daniel and Job were in its by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and it depopulated it, and it became desolate, so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts, those beasts, though these two men were in the as I live, declared the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on that country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declared the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath and blood on it and cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declared the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They would deliver only themselves and their daughters. For thus, so what? For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it? Yet behold, survivors will be left in it, who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they who are going to come forth to you, and you 
will see their conduct and their actions, and you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon them. Then they will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions, for you will know that I have not done in vain whatever I did to you. Is there a way in which the presence of righteous people can spare a nation, city, country, church, whatever? And I think that we would say yes. I mean, think about Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that famous uh, occasion where Abraham discussed with the Lord and kept talking to God until finally God said, if there are ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, he would not destroy those cities. Now, there didn't turn out to be ten, but if there had been ten... The presence of ten righteous people would have spared cities as terribly wicked as those cities. So there is a sense in which the presence of righteous people may be what spares a nation. I mean, we have no idea where God's at with America. And there's, you know, we can speculate, but we don't know. But it certainly would be possible that God is sparing America. Because of the presence of some people like we have here today who are serving the Lord. At least I would suspect that the presence of righteous people is much more important for the longevity of this country than our whole military apparatus and bombs and armies and whatever. So, you know, that that idea that the presence of righteous people may cause a an area to be spared, I think is a valid concept. Now, here he says, all right, We've got a country who sins against me, like Jerusalem. I think that's what he's talking about. And I send a famine. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were there, they would only be able to deliver themselves. God would not deliver a, a, a country this corrupt. Even if it was Noah, Daniel, and Job there. And then it, if he sends wild beasts, and these three men were there, they'd only deliver themselves. If he sent a sword, and these three men were in his midst, they could only deliver themselves. If he sent plague, and only Noah, Daniel, and Job were in his midst, as I live, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. So that's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, you would think, if you had Noah, Daniel, and Job in the same city, country, church, whatever, why? I mean, rarely would you imagine having all three of them in one place but things are so bad, that's his point, things are so bad in Jerusalem that even the presence of those three righteous men together, they would only be able to deliver themselves, no one else, because things are so bad. So my question is, Noah, Daniel, and Job? Do you ever think about putting those three together? There's a lot of question marks with that. I mean, for one thing, I mean, one of the most obvious Dissimilarities between Noah, Daniel, and Job is what? What would be the what would be the dissimilarity between those three that you see? Yeah, Daniel's a contemporary. Noah and Job were like at the beginning of the world. You know, that's that's kind of odd. Noah, Daniel, and Job. It's like you know saying uh, you know Columbus, uh, you know Trump, and uh, Washington, or something like that. You know, wow, that's kind of out of era. Uh, so that's kind of an intriguing thing. So what would put these three together? What, what's the deal about Noah, Daniel, and Job? I think there are some things we can see in that. 
For one thing, think about this. What were Noah, Daniel, and Job delivered from? What was Noah delivered from? The flood, the natural disaster. What was Daniel delivered from at this point in time? Wild beasts. Wild beasts? No, not at this point in time. What, John? Jerusalem, but that hadn't even happened yet. What has happened with Daniel he's been delivered from? We have to think about this one a minute. Elizabeth? The destruction of the prophets Exactly. Daniel chapter 2. Remember when they were out for all the wise men, Daniel included, and they were going to kill him because the wise men couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. I mean, he wasn't playing the game they were used to playing, and they couldn't tell him what his dream was. They could tell him the interpretation. You know, I could usually tell the interpretation to give me the dream. But uh, you tell him the dream's another matter. And uh, so they were going to kill Daniel. And so he really del- was delivered from the sword. And then what was Job delivered from? Well, a lot of things, but I'm thinking here the plague, the disease that he faced. Because you've got the natural disaster, you've got the sword, you've got the, the, the pestilence, the plague. So they were delivered from those things. Now, what would you say about Noah's basic character? He was righteous. Righteous. What would you say about Daniel's basic character? Very righteous. You know many characters that seem much better in the Bible than Daniel? I mean, he'd have to be on your, I think, your top ten list of really, really righteous men in the Bible. What about Job? Well, yeah. God said he was the best there was. If you consider my servant Job, there's nobody else like him. You know, in his generation, at least, he was the best. (laughs) Can't imagine what that might be in our generation. We'd have no way of knowing. Can you imagine? This is the top. So really, really, really righteous men. But I think the key to choosing these three is this. In their generation were Noah, Daniel, and Job able to save others. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, Daniel, All the wise men of uh, Babylon. That was pretty impressive. Job. His three friends by his intercession and sacrifice for them. He actually was used by God to save them. These are men that in their generation were righteous enough. They were able to save others, but things are so bad here they wouldn't save anyone other than themselves. In fact, he specifically says in verse 16, they couldn't even save their sons or their daughters, just themselves, 18 and 20 also. So it's like themselves alone, and all these three were able, had been able in their generations to save others. Now, let me say a couple more things about all that. There is a rather powerful line of thought in commentaries, including some pretty conservative commentaries. That this Daniel can't be talking about the contemporary Daniel. You know, we see that as kind of an oddity. But they say this is actually some pagan king, Daniel, 
from ancient writings and mythology and whatever, and that he's using Danel, not Daniel, as his illustration here. Well, do you really believe that God would use an idolater in this book that condemns idolatry so strongly as an example of virtue and righteousness? I can't think of an example where God would have done something like that. Why not have a contemporary example? I know it's kind of odd to go Noah, Daniel, Job, but there's, I don't see a problem with that. And it seems to me much better than trying to go outside the Bible to some pagan and use him as an example of righteousness. Uh, you know, just, just uh, as far as I'm concerned, I have no problem with this being the biblical Daniel. Um, and, and so, you know, God was willing to spare Sodom, or would have been, for ten righteous. They're too bad even for that. It's really amazing at this point that anybody survives. He says in verse 21, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague. You know, this is going to be worse. And, 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 but he causes some to survive, basically, so it would show everybody else that God punished them fairly and righteously, justly, that they deserve that punishment. It would demonstrate God's justice by him preserving a sample and people getting a load of how bad they were. You'd say, well, God had every right to punish them like this. So he was going to save a, a, a remnant for that purpose. Okay, thoughts and comments on this section. Tyler. Yeah, amen. Yes, Robert. Good point. Noah, Daniel, Daniel, and Job were righteous men who suffered. We can expect that. Chuck. As an aside, I mean, it's sort of obvious, but one other thing that these three have in common, I think, is notable is that they were righteous amongst the unrighteousness. Yes. And that's sort of his point, but that's just notable and encouraging. Pretty you, much you, true you, of all you, righteous you, men, you, but yes, that's exactly right. Yes. Johnny. So, I have a question. So, uh, kind of kind of uh, why does God say, that's an oath he's saying like by my life I swear that kind of a thing that was kind of their um, way of swearing way of making take an oath, taking an oath yes This is God saying, as I live, normally uh, if a person took the oath, it'd be as the Lord lives. Makai? I think because Daniel was a contemporary, Daniel was... 
There is, this is a bit of an alternate spelling of Daniel also, so that maybe leads to that. I don't know. I have a terrible time ever defending a view I don't hold. I'm bad at that. So I'm bad at giving reasons why people think something when I think the reasons are hairbrained. Either. Yes, certainly. When you see these things used in Revelations, like they're drawing from the symbolism of the earlier prophets. So I think, yes, the uh, and, and the fourth uh, fourth uh, horse, he is using those four severe judgments of Ezekiel 14, and an indication that those are the judgments of the Lord. There are some debates about what those four horses involve, but I think this is a passage that's actually helpful in seeing that. Yeah, it was. I think that's correct. Jake. Just a comment on the, uh, the name How many times do you see in the Old Age Testament where somebody didn't mention, and it's obviously them, but the name's different, it's spelled different. Right. You know, so the spelling I don't think is a big issue, but I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I don't think it's a big issue. But that is one argument that's made. Somebody may think the other. If you think if you think the opposite of me, you're welcome to uh, to defend that. Since I didn't do a good job of that, so that's it. This is, this passage is at the center of the debate about the date of Daniel, and so I think a lot of scholars get this. They've already decided that this could be Daniel, but the Daniel came much later, and so it must be somebody else. And it's nothing in the text that led them to that. It's a preconceived notion that Daniel could not have prophesied what he obviously prophesied. Yeah, like, good point. Yeah. So, I mean, is there any good reason to think it's anybody other than the biblical Daniel? Now, I, I, to me, the arguments I've read just don't hold any water. And I'm, I'm amazed that some of the conservative scholars hold that. It's like, why would you think that, Chris? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, again, the fact that a remnant comes out of this is really surprising. You wouldn't expect that. It's a sign of God's mercy and also justifying what he's done. Right. Good point. Yeah, we need to see more the seriousness of sin and the awful consequences of it. You know, these passages are important for us, and and sometimes I don't do a very good job of trying to reflect on 
the application of the lesson for us. But, you know, one of the things that's really helpful as we study through these passages, try and try to get the sense of them, but to go back and, and think about them, meditate on them, you know, and just, you know, try to think about, okay, you know, in what ways should this passage impact my thinking and my mind? You know, how, how is this useful for me? What, do, what would God want me to get out of this in my life? I think that's a very helpful thing to go through and do. Yes? And he's showing us that reason in this book. Yes, exactly. Good point. Okay. Uh, Adam. Absolutely, yeah. The curses of the covenant, when they were breaching their end of the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, are greatly reflected throughout Ezekiel. Absolutely. Good point. All right, we're going to sing about uh, some of the judgment of God, uh, some passages, uh, some songs that I think will help us to reflect on that, and Caleb's going to lead us.